You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. As the children make their way to Children's Church, please open or turn on your Bible with me to our text for this morning, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. I'm very happy to be standing up here with you again this morning because we have such a wonderful opportunity again in the book of Philippians to consider what the Christian life ultimately is about. It is about the the happiness and joy that we have in Christ. And this morning, even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, it gives us a unique opportunity as well to think about how we can maximize the joy that we have together as a people. Uh, as a people, which we've said recently, the, the people of God are universal. They're around the world in many countries, even as we have highlighted through our offerings at Christmas and at Easter to support missions and church planting around the world, but also in our local church. Uh, such a wonderful opportunity for us to think about these things and to grow in our faith together. God's really doing doing wonderful things in my heart, and I hope that he is in yours as well. It brings a question for us as we continue in the book of Philippians. You know, we're just a little past uh, the beginning of the second chapter. And that question would be, again, a a reminder question of what is the, the book of Philippians really about? Is it about the joy and happiness of people? And the answer, obviously, is yes, it is, because the Apostle Paul has been talking so much about joy. This, this letter to the Christians in Philippi, to the Philippians, has often been called the epistle or letter of joy. But is it about something more? Yes. Actually, the letter to the Philippians is about the joy and happiness of God. This is one of the most amazing truths in all the universe. One of the most amazing truths in the Bible, which comes through on, in so many pages of the Bible to us, and we want to really grab a hold of it. It is this truth, that the God of the Bible is the happiest being in the universe. He is happy all day long. He is happy every day of the year. We're reminded of that in certain verses, even like Psalm 115.3 that says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That is, in fact, what it means to be happy, isn't it? That's even what it means for us to be happy. What is it that makes you and me happy? It is the ability or times when we get what we want, when we do what pleases us. But one of the amazing, if not the most amazing truth, certainly as we consider the book of Philippians and our own happiness in God, is that God is always happy because he he does whatever he pleases at every moment of every day. He always does what pleases himself. When good things happen in our world, he is happy. When bad things happen in our world, He is still happy. He is still in ultimate control. He is working even in the midst of those bad things. All of his purposes and all of his plans, he's always getting everything that he wants. 
And this happiness is what he has chosen to share with us. Happy people make people happy. Isn't that true in your life? Just in a basic, just think about your daily life. Who makes you the most happy in your life? Happy people. And that is true of God as well, because he has delighted himself in making himself happy and doing what he pleases. And what he is pleased to do is to deliver to us the unending good news of grace in Jesus Christ, that he will be the satisfier, the the happy maker of our souls all down through the ages of history and on into eternity, being with him. Therefore, he is sharing his happiness with us when he brings us by faith to himself. It is an amazing thing. This is not an easy thing for us to understand, but we want to understand it. And as a people of God and as a, as a local church, we want to understand it together. And so this morning, we are going to consider just two truths. I know. People who have trouble with change, you're having a hard time because we went from a lot of three-point sermons to two, not one, two four-point sermons, and now we're going all the way down to a two-point sermon. Just looking at these two verses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. But these two truths, what we're looking to do is really understand how we, as a people together, can take steps forward to maximize the joy that we have in Christ together with Him. And here's the first truth that we need to understand as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. That this, this way of God that we'll learn about in a moment, is not natural to us. Actually, because of sin, there's another way of living, another way of thinking. There's another worldview that has become, because of sin, natural to us. It's the natural human way. The Bible clearly teaches, as it shows us here, that the natural human way is the way of selfish conceit. In fact, that is a, a tragic thing that sin has done to our hearts. It has, it has turned us away and inward, away from God, first and foremost, but also it has turned us away from one another. It has caused us to think more about ourselves than we think about anyone else, and our focus becomes selfish and conceited. And what is so interesting and, and tragic at the same time is that this work of sin in our hearts actually has has convinced us that it's the right way. Until we read verses like Proverbs 14, 21, that says this incredible reminder, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are many of those because sin has had such an effect on our thinking. Sometimes we call that the noetic effects of sin change the way we think and see the world. And therefore, we think it's the right way, but actually it's the way of death. And that is true here. It's true anywhere. It's true here that the natural human way is to live in a kind of selfish, empty conceit. And that's what Paul says here. Notice in verse 3, he's he's been focusing in, as we know, on the importance of joy in Christ and, and magnifying that to the glory of God. And now he's turning the attention even more clearly to the, the body of Christ and how we interact together. 
that how we coming around the happiest being in the universe, God himself, coming to know him by faith together in Christ and now walking together as a covenant family, he's helping us to understand how we relate to one another. But he starts off by giving us the bad news. He starts off by critiquing the natural human way. That's why he says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. As we've noticed before, the reason that the Bible says things like this is because these things are happening. There would be no reason to say this if no one was being selfish and no one was was living in empty conceit. But we are. That's our natural way. So he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Two very important words or phrases he uses here. First, selfishness. The word that he uses really carries with it not just, um, not, not just a focus or a thought about yourself, but it is thinking about yourself in a rivalry with other people. It is to think about yourself in opposition primarily to other people or trying to get a, a leg up on other people. It, it, it is the kind of selfishness that makes life a competition, especially among the people of God, that there's a vying for a position. We certainly see that in the world, don't we? But also he talks about an empty conceit or or more literally, a vain glory. That's one of the characters, I think, in in, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, vain glory. And that character helps to, to illuminate what often happens in our lives, that, that we, are, we are derailed by the world or by the flesh or, or by the devil's temptations, and we start to focus in on other glories, something else that we would treasure, or the, what the Bible calls idolatry. And these ruling desires take over us, but we don't see them. It seems right, but we don't see that it actually is emptiness, it's It's the way of death. So he talks here about empty conceit. He warns us. This is a warning. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But it's not just a warning because with every warning comes the encouragement to recognize this. It doesn't do any good to hear a a command or instruction like this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, And then walk away without any ability to recognize it in ourselves. He's encouraging a recognition. He's encouraging what's required that we become in tune. We become in tune. We become good students of our own hearts as we think about where is this in my life? Is it at times rearing an ugly head of selfishness or empty conceit? How is this happening It really is about a self-awareness, biblical understanding of ourselves and being concerned about that, being aware of that. Because as we'll see in a moment, there is a better way. It's not the way that seems right to us naturally. It's the way that is delivered to us by, by God's amazing revelation to us of who he is and what he's like and what he what he wants us to be. But nevertheless, this is something that we all wrestle with. We see it and probably notice it in other people more than we do ourselves, but, but it can be good to notice it where it is outside, out in the world. There's all kinds of pictures. You might be able to think of some right now. You might think of, a, of the business person who's always looking for the way to climb the corporate ladder no matter the cost. 
constantly putting in extra hours and networking tirelessly and stepping on or over other people, striving ahead for this glory that is, that is such a draw and an appeal. Coworkers see that person as being just ruthless, uncaring, pushing aside. That's the kind of picture that the Apostle Paul is painting when he uses these words of selfishness or empty conceit. But what, he, what he's really getting at is the heart within it. That's why, as he, we'll see in a moment, he turns his attention to a change of heart, not just a change of, of tactic or method at, at work or, or in our families or in our communities or with our own ambitions about life. He's going to do that because he wants to eradicate this selfish way of life. So he gives two big commands that we're seeing. Do nothing from selfishness first. And the second, do not look out for your own personal interests. Notice in verse four, he says that the very first clause between the four and the first comma, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. I think Paul's concerned because he's speaking to Christians who are in a family together and he's, he's desiring to increase their joy, which increases his joy and together how they glorify God. He is concerned that this kind of living, the natural way of mankind in the fall, shrinks life down. He's concerned that it will shrink the church down to a singular person, to an inward focus. And while there are many things that this will do, many tragedies, uh, many ugly qualities that it would bring to a church or to people who live this way, I think that in the context of Philippians, one of Paul's major concerns is that if empty conceit and selfishness takes root among a people and some or many of the people begin looking simply to their own interests, it will shrink and diminish the joy of those people. And by shrinking and diminishing the joy of those people, it can shrink in a way the glory that they give to God, who's the, the God of joy and happiness, the God who's given his son for that very purpose to satisfy them, to delight himself in making them delight in him. And therefore, this is an enemy of the church. It's an enemy of happiness. It's an enemy of glory. But rather, the better way that we'll see next will broaden out and open the horizon of happiness and joy in God's kingdom by having the reminder again that that's what we're a part of. We're not individuals, though it can feel that way. We're sitting in individual chairs. They're, they're sort of divided. We're not on pews anymore. We feel as though we're all just individual people sometimes coming together for a little while and splitting up again. But the, the reality, the ultimate real reality is that we are part of a family, that we are part of a kingdom. Why is that kind of isolated life, why is that, that inward-looking kind of selfish or, 
or vain glory pursuit so detrimental? Why is it such a concern? Why does Paul want to eradicate this from the church of Jesus Christ? It's because it's antithetical to the kingdom family. That is not what a church is to be. That's not the way that things work. That's not the way that people have joy and give glory to God. Therefore, he warns us, and the Bible warns us over and over again, and we do well to take that warning. When you hear a warning then, here's the first application for this morning. We must become aware. We must beware of the sinister lie that God-glorifying happiness can be gained in isolation. That it can be gained by ourselves without growing, flourishing relationship to one another. That's why membership in the local church is not just about a role. Checking off who is here at ABF or who is here in the worship service or the prayer gathering tonight, it's not about just just coming and being apart for a little while and then going your way. Actually, what it is about is about family. It's about flourishing together in relationships so that our lives become intertwined. This is what the church, this is what the kingdom of God is. And therefore, when Paul looks around the churches of his day, or if he were here now and looking around the churches of our day, this would remain a major concern for him. He would be concerned to eradicate the church of selfishness and empty conceit in the lives of each individual person, but together as they come together as a church. Therefore, we ought to beware of this to be on the lookout for this and fight back against it for the sake of joy in Christ, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of our part of God's kingdom that has come to become part of us. We are part of it. And therefore, we should beware the sinister lie that you can have God-glorifying happiness, that you can have Christian satisfaction that you can have Jesus as your treasure, that you can have a happy and meaningful Christian life without the kingdom, without the church, without the community group, without the worship gathering, without the one-on-one discipleship, without the coming together in times of crisis and suffering and sin without celebrating together the good things that happen and and pursuing together the happiness that we have in God. It is a way that seems right sometimes, but actually it's the way of death. So Paul is concerned and we want to be concerned with him. That's the bad news. The bad news is that's our natural way. That's my natural way. If I'm left to myself without God's superseding work of grace in my heart, Without his grace at work through you in my life, this is who I am. This is who I will become. Isolated, focused more on me than anything else, and therefore I will live my life by myself with very little interaction 
because sin is still in my heart and it is tricky. So we want to beware of this. And we can beware of it also, not just because we're concerned and we don't want it to happen and we want to eradicate it, but with Paul, he wants to replace it. And this is the great news that follows the bad news, is that there is another way. This is what's so amazing about the Bible. It made God happy to give you a Bible. He gave us the Bible to make us happy. Because in the word of God, he tells us what he's like. He tells us the better way. He tells us instead of the natural way that you have been born into because of sin and you participate in it because you're a sinner, the selfishness and empty conceit that every human heart knows, I am giving you an entirely different way to live. And it is a way that makes me happy. And it will make you happy in me. And he offers it to us here. That's what Paul does here. He does that all the time when he's interacting in his writings. He's always putting off, but also putting on. He's always bringing in the good news after that to show us the better way. So God offers us the better way, and, and it is the way. It's, a, it's awesome that we're celebrating Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is such a wonderful picture of what Christ has done for us and picture of this announcement of good news because that is the better way. The better way is empowered in the gospel, and the better way of God is not the way of selfish conceit, obviously. It's the way of generous humility together. And that's what we see second, that God offers us a better way empowered in the gospel that is generous humility. He is really contrasting two concepts here. The generosity toward others that sees us pouring our lives out and the generosity merely to ourselves in selfish gain, only thinking about what is, what is good for me. And we see here in these verses that it happens by a unique change. Let's just look at that for a moment first. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another more important than yourselves. Just for a moment, think about what that means. With humility, consider. It is actually a humility of mind, an active kind of humility that leads us, because of the gospel, to think differently about other people. It leads us to think in a, in a humility that, that, that lifts other people above ourselves, for sure. That we would consider them and that we would pursue happiness in them together. It's this humility of mind. I think that's why, the Paul, why Paul uses this. There's a word here. Uh, and, and there's some challenging kind of language for me to understand, but here, but I think what he does is he uses this word that is similar to the word heterogeneous. This is going to take you back to those high school chemistry days, right? With you have a solution that is a, a heterogeneous mixture. That means it's a mixture of different things together or a homogeneous mixture. It's a mixture of the same thing. He actually uses that language a bit here and it helps to kind of illustrate what's going on. He says, with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. He's introducing 
uh, two things against each other. There's either the, the singular way of living, the selfish way, which is just concerned about me, and another way that has concerns for others to bring different people into the mix. The homogeneous mixture is all the same. That's, that's a, a homogeneous worldview, just looks at everything in relation to what I like and what I want. The heterogeneous mixture looks at the broader landscape of people. It has our eyes also, keyword in a second, also on other people. But notice this. This is where it gets tricky, and this is where it takes some work and some real thought. Paul does not argue for an abandonment of all care for your own interests. He says in verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Wouldn't it be easier to say... Forget about your interests, forget about your happiness, and focus only on the interests and happiness of others. Wouldn't that be easier? Maybe, but that's not what he says. He says, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We're kind of reminded as we think about the the other way, maybe that you could put that if in the other way I was mentioning, it's sort of that picture. It's really like common to all of our lives. You know, it's that picture when, when two really selfless people are trying to decide what to ha- have for lunch. And they sit in the car and one says, well, what would you like for lunch? And then the selfless person in the pastor seat says, oh, no, no, no. What you want for lunch. That's, I want to do what you want for lunch. And then the person in the driver's seat says, oh, no, no, no. I want what you want for lunch. I'm a selfless person. I want what you want. That's all I really am concerned about. No thought about me. And then the person in the driver's seat, oh, no, no thought about me. It's, and what happens? They starve in the parking lot. They, <laughs> they can't find anywhere to go. Now, this, this kind of selflessness, quote, selflessness, undercuts the happiness that Paul has in mind in the church. Because it is not a bunch of individuals receiving from someone else what they want. It's a shared experience of joy and happiness in Christ. What should we do? What should you do? Should you look out for your own interests? That is, what will cause you to enjoy and thus glorify God most? Or should you look out for the interests of others? Meaning, what will cause others to enjoy and thus glorify God most? Which should you do? Both. That's what he says, both. But that, for some reason, does not come natural to us. It's become difficult. Because for some reason, myself included, I think that many of us have embraced a kind of misguided doctrine of self-denial in which we believe that it's actually godly to give zero thought to our own measure of happiness in Christ, and we have labeled that kind of thing selfish. We have cut ourselves out of the equation 
and diminished the shared experience of being together and reveling in the happiness of Christ as a people. Let's try to bring that home because that's a complicated kind of thing to think about just in a few moments on a Sunday morning. Let's try to bring it together with some math. Let's think about it this way. It's on the screen. Kyle updated the slides so they would be a little more understandable because it's challenging to think about. Here are some different ways that we could do the happiness math in a local church or in relationship to one another, considering what Paul says about do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, thinking about both of them at the same time. So there's a shared experience of joy in Christ, and we are together surging upward together for the glory of God, and our, our mutual happiness together is growing as a people. Here's one way. If you do the math this way, you say, regard for my personal happiness... That's my focus. Minus any regard for God's glory, of course, leaves us with a kind of, it's like not really a kind of Christianity, but a kind of blasphemous Christianity. This is the way of man that seems right that we were thinking about in verse three. It's the way that says, really what's most important in this life is me. Forget about God's glory. It's all about what I want. And that's the selfishness. That's the empty conceit that Paul is talking about. Obviously, we cancel that out. That's bad math. But there, it, remember, it's not, it's not totally straightforward to us for some reason. We've become confused. Here's another way that we can look at it. It's regard for my personal happiness without regard for your personal interests. Then we get that kind of deformed Christianity. It's again, it's a Christianized version of that selfishness. But there is a third option. What about regard for your happiness in Christ minus a regard for my happiness in Christ. Now our relationship is deformed. That's not the picture that Paul is is sharing with us. It's not what we're being encouraged in. It's lopsided. We're not together. There's not the mutual experience. This is that kind of misguided self-denial. But there is a fourth way. It is regard for your ultimate happiness in Christ plus a regard for my ultimate happiness in Christ multiplied by the glory of God. And what do we get then? We get true Christian happiness. We get get gospel happiness. We get kingdom happiness. This is the way a family works. This is the way a church works. That we together consider What together will magnify our joy in Christ to the glory of God and we chase after that together? The main shift that this requires of many of us, I think, is what we have already been considering. A personal desire to know more of the joy of knowing Christ in my own life. And then trying to provoke others to have the same kind of joy and to share in that joy together. What is so helpful for, to help us understand this is to see that this is, actually, this is actually the way that God relates to us. This is actually what the gospel reveals to us. Here are two brief passages that help point this out. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses talking about the hall of faith, 
those who have gone before surrounding us. Let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. For the joy set before him. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he was happy to. Why did Jesus go to the cross? To bring us into his happiness. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Or Isaiah 53.10. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Why was the Lord crushing of Jesus? Because it pleased him to do it. It pleased him to give his son because it was by Christ, faith in him, that he was going to satisfy his people, that he was going to to have a peculiar people who belong to him and are happy, not in the things of the world anymore, but happy in him and happy together. Do you see what's happening? God delights himself in doing what will delight us to his own glory. Therefore, a way that we can be like God is to do something very similar. As his people, we ought to pursue our own delight in God by provoking delight in others as we delight together in the glory of God. I'm going to say that one more time. That's a long sentence. And it takes some unpacking, and we have community group time this week to do that. As his people, we ought to pursue our own delight in him by provoking this delight in others so that we delight together in the glory of our God. It means that we're all going to strive together as one family to increase our joy as a church in him and look to him with greater and greater happiness. Uh, Pastor Kevin highlighted this in ABF this morning. That one of the great attributes of the people of God can be, should be, it's not always that way, it's hard, but it can be and should be and we should strive for it. Joy that we would be known as people who are happy to be together. We're happy to be with our God. We're happy to worship. We're happy to know him. And we're happy because he is happy. So the second use of our text this morning is simply that we would maximize our delight in God by looking for ways to help other people delight in God. There are no two greater interests in the life of other people, in the life of our own. There's no greater interest than to delight in the God who loves us and to glorify him with our joy in him. If you want to look out for the interests of others, this is the main interest to look out for. You can answer that question. Ask yourself, how could I make my spouse happier today in Christ than yesterday? 
How can I help my children or my neighbor or my uh, opponent at work or whoever it is? How can I help them find the ultimate joy of Christ today? And at the same time, how would that delight me to do that? How could I delight in seeing this happen? Those are the questions of personal interest. And there are many others, right? There are lots of other practical things that Paul has in mind. It has to do with with the broader way that we serve other people, for sure. But this is at the center. Why do we look out for the interests of other people? Why do we serve other people? Why do you serve other people? Why do you take meals when people are sick? Why do you hug people when they're sad? Why do you give gifts on Christmas and birthdays? Why do we do that? Because I want you to be happy. And this is at the center of the Lord's Supper. It's at the center of the gospel. It's the center of everything that we are as God's people. And therefore, we are on this quest. What a perfect picture. I'm going to invite the deacons who are going to prepare and bring the elements of the Lord's Supper and, and, uh, out to us. And now would be a good time for us to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Well, whether you're not a member of our church, if you're a believer, you trust in Christ, you're welcome to, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us by taking the bread and the fruit of the vine together as we think about the good news. If, though you're here and you're not a Christian, then we would ask you to wait, that you would use this time to observe and to pray and to seek this relationship with Jesus, that you would come to him by faith today, and this would be a wonderful opportunity to to think about that. As we prepare our hearts, I, I want to just point out again what a perfect picture we have before us on the the Lord's table, of these realities. The Lord's Supper is the ultimate picture, as we've seen already, from Hebrews 12 and Isaiah 53. It's the ultimate picture of divine happiness. The Father pleased to crush the Son, the Son happily enduring the cross with joy, all for the happiness of the Father, who by His Holy Spirit will share His happiness with the world, and more particular, with His people, the believers who He brings to Himself. This is a picture of how God has entered our world, and He has come to make us delight in Him in a way that nothing else could delight us. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture that we're celebrating today. And we want to make the most of it. We want to maximize our joy together as the people of God. So let me encourage you, as the elements come around, that you get that on your mind. You get that in your heart. That you pray about that. You you thank God. God, thank you. Thank you for delighting in my life. Thank you for being happy to give your son to crush him for me. Thank you for being happy to to change me and to be with me and to be patient with me. Thank you for being happy to show me grace and mercy. Thank you for being happy to be my happiness. Make me happy, Lord. Make me happy in you. Help me to see this. I'm having such a hard time seeing this. Help me to participate in the joy that you offer to me in Christ. Those are the kinds of things we can be praying about. Let me pray as as we take the elements around and then I'll come up again to lead us in the taking of Lord's Supper. Father, we give you thanks this morning because you are the God of all joy. You are the God of all comfort. You are the God of all happiness. 
But you in and of yourself, without us, without the world, even before you brought the world into existence, you, you were fully happy, fully satisfied in yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the fall has not diminished in any way your, your joy in yourself and your happiness in the world and your working, your plans, even in the midst of our sorrow and our sin and our heartache. Yet even then, when you rejoice with us or when you weep with us, you're happy to do it. And so we pray that you would cause us to be happy in you today as we take this Lord's Supper and use it as a means of grace in our hearts. We need that. We need you to teach us. We need you to refresh us and brighten our vision of what it means to know you and love you and to be a part of a local church like this. Help us. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.